The third extract is an interview between the generously moustached Duke of Dunstable and another of his nephews, Ricky, who some pages previously had asked his uncle for a loan to start an onion soup bar. Now, Ricky has just promised to kidnap Lord Emsworth's pig for him. The most delightful atmosphere now prevailed in the lounge of the Emsworth Arms. The Duke said it was extremely kind of Ricky to be so flattering. Ricky said that flattering was surely hardly the word, for he had merely given a frank opinion which would have been the opinion of anybody who recognised genius when they came across it. The Duke said, would Ricky have a drink? Ricky, thanking him profusely, said it was a bit early. The Duke asked Ricky if he had been writing anything lately. Ricky said not just lately, but he had a sonnet coming out in the Poetry Review next month. Dashed interesting things, sonnets, said the Duke, and asked if Ricky had regular hours for sitting at his desk, or did he wait for an inspiration? Ricky said he found the policy that suited him best was to lurk quietly till an idea came along and then jump out and land on the back of its neck with both feet. The Duke said that if somebody offered him a million pounds, he himself would be incapable of writing a sonnet. Ricky said, oh, it was just a knack, not to be compared with work that took real hard thinking, and gave as an instance of such work the planning out of campaigns for stealing pigs. To do that, said Ricky, a fellow really had to have something. There was, in fact, only one word to describe what was in progress in that dim lounge, the word love feast. And it was a thousand pities, therefore, that Ricky should have proceeded, as he did now, to destroy the harmony. Poets, as a class, are businessmen. Shakespeare describes the poet's eye as rolling in a fine frenzy from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and giving to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. But in practice you'll find that one corner of that eye is generally glued on the royalty returns. Ricky was no exception. Like all poets, he had his times of dreaminess, but an editor who sent him a cheque for a pound instead of the guinea which had been agreed upon as the price of his latest morceau was very little older before he found a sharp letter on his desk or felt his ear burning at what was coming over the telephone wire. And now, having accepted this commission and discussed it in broad outline, he was anxious to get the terms settled. By the way, Uncle Alaric, he said. Huh? said the Duke who had been interrupted in what promised to be rather a long story about a man he had known in South Africa who had once written a limerick. Ricky, though feeling that this sort of negotiation would have been better placed in the hands of one's agent, was resolute. There's just one small point, he said. Would you rather give me your cheque before I do the job, or after? The cosy glow which had been enveloping the Duke became shot through by a sudden chill. It was as if he had been luxuriating in a warm shower-bath, and some hidden hand had turned on the cold tap. "'My cheque? What do you mean, my cheque?' "'For two hundred and fifty pounds.' The Duke shot back in his chair, and his moustache, foaming upwards as if a gale had struck it, broke like a wave on the stern and rock-bound coast of the Dunstable Nose. 
A lesser moustache under the impact of that quick, agonised expulsion of breath would have worked loose at the roots. His recent high opinion of his nephew had undergone a sharp revision. Though there were many points on which their souls would not have touched, he was at one with Mr. Pott in his dislike of parting with money. Only a man of very exceptional charm could have retained his esteem after asking him for two hundred and fifty pounds. "'What the devil are you talking about?' he cried. Ricky was looking anxious, like one vis-à-vis -vis with a tiger, and not any too sure that the bars of the cage are to be depended upon. But he continued resolute. I'm taking it for granted that you'll now let me have the money to buy that onion soup bar. You remember we discussed it in London a few days ago, and at that time five hundred was the price, but the man has since come down to two hundred and fifty, provided the cash is in his hands by the end of the week. The most convenient thing for me, of course, would be if you would write out a cheque now. Then I could mail it to him this morning, and he'd get it first thing tomorrow. Still, suit yourself about that, just so long as I get the money by Friday. I never heard anything so dashed absurd in my life. You mean you won't give me two hundred and fifty pounds? Of course I mean I won't give you two hundred and fifty pounds, said the Duke, recovering his moustache and starting to chew it. Gah! he said, summing up. The love feast was over. A tense silence fell upon the lounge of the Emsworth Arms. "'I thought I'd heard the last of that bally nonsense,' said the Duke, breaking it. "'What on earth do you want with an onion soup bar, anyway?' It was perhaps the memory of how close they had been to one another only a few minutes back, two of the boys kidding back and forth about the sonnet question, as he might say, that decided Ricky to be frank with his uncle. He was conscious, as he spoke, that frankness is a quality that can be overdone, and one which, in the present case, might lead to disagreeable consequences. But some powerful argument had to be produced if there was to be a change for the better in the other's attitude. And there was just a chance. Mr. Pott, in his silver-ring days, would probably have estimated it at hundred to eight, that what he was about to say would touch the man's heart. After all, the toughest specimens were sometimes melted by a tale of true love. I want to get married, he said. If the Duke's heart was touched, his rugged exterior showed no sign of it. His eyes came out of his head like a prawn's, and once more his moustache foamed up against his breakwater of a nose. Married, he cried. What do you mean, married? Don't be an ass. Ricky had started the day with a tenderness towards all created things, and this attitude he had hoped to be able to maintain, but he could not help feeling that Providence, in creating his Uncle Arric, was trying him a little high. "'I never heard such nonsense in my life. How the devil can you afford to get married? You've got about tuppence a year which your mother left you, and I don't suppose you make enough of those sonnets of yours to keep you in cigarettes.' That's why I want to buy this onion soup bar. And a nice fool you'd look selling onion soup. With a strong effort, Ricky succeeded in making no comment on this. It seemed to him that silence was best, 
Galling though it was to allow his companion to score debating points, it was better than to close all avenues leading to an appeasement with a blistering repartee. At the moment, moreover, he could not think of a blistering repartee. The Duke's moustache was rising and falling like seaweed on an ebb tide. And a nice fool I'd look going about trying to explain away a nephew who dished soup out of a tureen. It's bad enough having to tell my friends you write poetry. What's that nephew of yours doing these days? The Duke proceeded, giving an imitation of an inquiring friend with, for some reason, a falsetto voice. The guards? The diplomatic service? Reading for the bar? No, I tell him, he's writing poetry. And there's an awkward silence. And now you want me to have it spread about that you become a blasted soup dispenser? Gah! A deep flush had spread itself over Ricky's face. His temper, always a little inclined to be up and doing, had begun to flex its muscles like an acrobat about to do a trick. As for this idea of yours getting married, why do you want to get married, eh? Why? Oh, just to score off the girl. I dislike her. You what? Why do you think I want to get married? Why do people usually want to get married? I want to get married because I found the most wonderful girl in the world and I love her. You said you disliked her. I was merely trying to be funny. The Duke took in a mouthful of moustache, chewed it for a moment, seemed dissatisfied with the flavour and expelled it again with another forceful puff. Who is she? Oh, nobody you know. Well, who's her father? Oh, nobody special. A sudden, sinister calm fell upon the Duke, causing his manner to resemble that of a volcano which is holding itself in by sheer willpower. You don't need to tell me any more. I see it all. The wench is a dashed outsider. She is not. Oh, don't argue with me. Well, that settles it. Not a penny do you get from me. All right. And not a pig do you get from me. Huh? The Duke was taken aback. It was seldom that he found himself in the position of having to deal with open mutiny in the ranks. Indeed, the experience had never happened to him before, and for an instant he was at a loss. Then he recovered himself, and the old imperious glare returned to his bulging eyes. Don't take that tone with me, young man. Not one single solitary porker do you set your hands on, said Ricky. My price for stealing pigs is £250 per pig, per person, and if you don't wish to meet my terms, the deal is off. If, on the other hand, you consent to pay this absurdly moderate fee for a very difficult and exacting piece of work, I am, on my side, am willing to overlook the offensive things you have said about a girl you ought to think yourself honoured to have the chance of welcoming into the family. Oh, stop talking like a damn fool. She's obviously the scum of the earth. The way a man's nephews get tangled with the dregs of the human species is enough to give one apoplexy. I absolutely forbid you to marry this female crossing sweeper. Ricky 
drew a deep breath. His face was like a stormy sky, and his eyes bored into his uncle like braddles. Uncle Alaric, he said, your white hairs protect you. You are an old man on the brink of the tomb. The duke started. What do you mean on the brink of the tomb? On the brink of the tomb, repeated Ricky firmly. And I am not going to shove you into it by giving you the slosh on the jaw which you have been asking for with every word you have uttered. But I would just like to say this. You are, without exception, the worst tick and bounder that ever got fatty degeneration of the heart through a half a century of gorging food and swilling wine wrenched from the lips of a starving proletariat. You make me sick. You poison the air. Goodbye, Uncle Alaric said Ricky, drawing away rather ostentatiously. I think that we had better terminate this interview, or I may become brusque. With a parting look of a kind which no nephew should have cast at an uncle, Ricky Galpin strode to the door and was gone. The Duke remained where he sat. He felt himself for the moment incapable of rising. It is bad enough for a man of imperious soul to be defied by a beardless boy, and his nephew's determination in face of his opposition to cling to the ballet girl, whatever she might be, with whom he had become entangled, would have been in itself enough to cause a temporary coma. But far more paralyzing was the reflection that in alienating Ricky Gilpin, he had alienated the one man who could secure the person of the Empress for him. Pig kidnappers do not grow on every bush. <laughs>